everyone and welcome back to Safe Space, the Safe in Our World podcast. For those who don't know, the main goal of Safe in Our World is to create and foster worldwide mental health awareness within the video games industry. My name is Rosie and today I'm joined by Dr. Amelia Mollenpakis, CEO and founder of Themia and neuroscientist working within the games industry, making games that assess and monitor mental health using theories from neuroscience. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome. <laughs> Yeah, no, thanks for coming on. I've, um, I was doing a bit of research about all of the work that you've been doing and it's literally like so interesting to me. I um, I always loved psychology and stuff in, in college and in school anyway, but like, oh my gosh, it's so, <laughs> it's so advanced. Like I'm so impressed uh, by you already. <laughs> um. But yeah, yeah I mean, no, tell, me, tell me a little so, bit about yourself. Like, uh, I'm Emilia. I'm the CEO and the co-founder of Themia. Um, founded Themia about two and a quarter years ago, back in April 2020, just around the start of the pandemic, um, together with my co-founder, Stefano, who is also the CTO. Uh, we met each other on an accelerator program here in the UK uh, called Entrepreneur First. So... For those of the listeners who aren't familiar with this kind of thing, it's a little bit like Y Combinator, if you've heard of it from the US, where basically you have cohorts of people and you kind of, this this company or this accelerator brings people together to try to help them um, start companies. And so that's how I met my co-founder. We were part of a cohort of about 100 people and ended up pairing up within the first week, which was great. And yeah, it sounds really weird, but somehow it kind of works sometimes um I think we were super lucky to 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 just meet each other and like really really click so um that was a two and a quarter years ago uh and my life's been very different from that point on to what it used to be so before that I was actually a researcher for about 12 years I worked uh for most of that time at UCL here in London and specialized in cognitive neuroscience linguistics so did a PhD there uh did a few postdocs and basically for all that time, I worked with different patient populations, had the pleasure of working with all sorts. So I started with Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, vascular dementia, so kind of the older age cognitive decline um, disorders. And then in time, moved over into aphasia after stroke. And then finally into mood disorders. So looking at depression, schizophrenia, those two more than anything. But for all of them, it sounds very diverse, but for all of them, I did the exact same thing, which was I always looked at how they used language and uh, use that essentially as a marker, either for cognitive decline or for response to treatment. And so it really is remarkable what you can see and tell from how somebody speaks, both how they sound, so the acoustic properties of their voice, but also what it is they're saying. Um, I ended up leaving academia when my best friend developed depression. Um, and I kind of saw her try to get help. And at the time, because she was also an academic and having depression is, is very, very common in, in academia and nobody really thought anything of it. And I kind of saw her try to get help initially in the NHS and then she went privately and still nobody thought anything of it. She saw a psychiatrist and then just two days later, we were meant to be meeting up. Uh, she didn't show up. Um, I went to her house and the door was open and um, I found her and she had tried to take her own life. And that was just two days after seeing her psychiatrist. And obviously, as you can imagine, it was very intense and very 
traumatic experience as a best friend. Like I felt so bad for not having seen it coming. Um, but once I kind of got over that, I started questioning why her psychiatrist didn't see this coming. He literally had seen her two days before. And so I spoke to him, spoke to a number of other psychiatrists, and they all just kept coming back to me with the same thing, which is basically saying, well, as mental health professionals, we're taught to observe and we're taught to ask questions. Um, but ultimately, if the patient or the person in front of us isn't willing to tell us or can't express themselves, don't they don't understand themselves how they're feeling, there's only so much we can do. And um, that kind of really shocked me. Like, we've been finding out in research for these amazing, like all about these amazing biomarkers for the past 20 years, um, not just in speech, which was my specialty, but also in like facial expression analysis in kind of how you move, how you interact with your phone. And none of this was actually being made available to clinicians who needed it. And so that's kind of when I decided to quit academia and kind of pursue the idea for Themia and that's kind of how it started long introduction but uh that's back no but it's so like it's so powerful and it's I think honestly um the story that you told about your best friend is is something that hits quite hard because um when I was probably experiencing the worst bout of depression that I've ever had it was almost like I didn't want to talk to people about it but I wanted them to know anyway and so I thought I was being really obvious with the way that I behaved um especially to people of authority or people who I thought maybe could actually do something to help but because I wasn't saying anything directly it nothing happened and so that ha- that was exactly the same for um a number of years before I actually was like okay I need to explicitly say that I need some help and I need to say what I need help yeah. with um which is a really daunting thing for a lot of people experiencing poor mental health and they maybe haven't talked about it before so yeah, it's um thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. And um I'm sorry to hear you yeah, went through that as it's, well. Oh, yeah, no, I talk about mm. it all the time now. It's um it's not something that I I struggle to speak about anymore. Um not without um practicing though, I must admit. I have to talk about it all the time and now with this job as well, it's like um it's very easy for me to be able to open up about these sorts of things knowing that a lot of other people have gone through that as well. Um, so with all of that knowledge and I guess, um, personal experience as well, what made you then decide to use the method of of video games to be able to implement those within clinicians? Yeah. So it's very interesting. I think because there's like multiple kind of factors pushing me towards gaming. One being I am a massive gamer myself, like, uh, from the age of two, I think before I could speak, my dad gave me like Super Mario to play on like really, really old school, um, you know, uh, Game Boy, <laughs> like a big block one. Um, I've always loved games. Nice. So to me, it made a lot of sense. And my co-founder also, um, is very big into gaming. So it did make a lot of sense to us anyway. However, there's also a lot of research showing that games offer people with mental health issues, particularly with depression or with bipolar disorder, they have a stabilization effect and they kind of help you kind of almost come out of that condition sometimes. Um, They offer another world for you to exist and develop and to to be um, another version of yourself essentially in. And that's been found to be super powerful for mental health issues. So there was that part as well. Um, Practically, while I was doing my postdoc, I also actually happened to be working 
um, with a gaming company as a consultant. And um, while this whole thing was happening with my friend, um, I was working with this company and helping them develop games that were based on um, neuroscience and linguistics. And kind of in that case, it was trying to help them make the game more interesting and, you know, make the game levels progressively harder. And I realized while I was building that, that actually there is no limit to what you can put inside a game. So actually, if you tweaked the game, you could embed some really powerful neuroscience and neuropsychology protocols into the game mechanics itself. So you can actually start picking up signs of depression in the same way that you would, say, in an experiment setting. So um, that kind of gave me the idea. I suggested it to the company at the time, and they didn't really care. They didn't want to do anything like that. So I thought, well, I'll do it. And so it was kind of all these different factors together. And yeah, it's fantastic because really you can take, that's kind of what we do at Themia. We take classic neuropsychology experiments and we just put that kind of a thin gaming layer on top. But actually what you get at the end, the reactions, the the data that you're collecting, they all are still as indicative of depression or of any other condition um, as um, the protocol itself would be in a, in a regular setting. Yeah. That's fascinating, honestly, like the fact that that's even possible to do and that nobody has thought to do it before baffles me as well, because it's like, obviously, it's it's an incredible idea and it's it's great. But like, there's so much to suggest that that tech can be used in science more and more. And there's just we I feel like especially in the UK, people are so nervous of change Mm -hmm. and so nervous of embracing new um, technology to be able to help with things that we just never ever move out of the system and, and things take so long to be able to change it um, but yeah I mean so how how does it actually work as a game to to pick up on these sorts of really small signals yeah. like I don't know what you call them, markers small markers I guess yes. of um of mental health like how does that work yeah so I guess it makes sense to explain like the games are themselves essentially the medium we've chosen to target specific types of data and specific signals. And so you'll find some other companies doing kind of looking at biomarkers, they tend to focus on just one type of data, specifically, typically it's speech. Um, We wanted to gather as much data as possible because there's a lot of evidence in AI um, research to suggest that when you combine different types of data, actually the signal is much stronger. And it, it kind of makes sense, right? The more data you get, the better the picture you get. So um, we wanted games that would be able to gather speech patterns. That was one data stream, essentially. So anything we can pick up from your microphone. The second data stream we gather is anything we can pick up from your smart device camera. So here we're looking at facial micro expressions, eye gaze patterns, upper body movements. So twitching, whether you're moving your head around a lot, which can be, say, very indicative um, of ADHD or of other mental health uh, or neuro developmental disorders. Um, And then uh, that's kind of the second stream. And then the final stream is basically looking at your behavior inside the game in terms of how are you interacting with your device. So uh, say if we show you something like an image, are you going to react quickly to it or is it slower? Um, Are you making mistakes? Um, What's the rate of those errors that you're making, et cetera? So you have these three super complex, very rich physiological data streams Uh, And each one, what we do is we split each one into thousands of different isolated features. And then we search through those features with our models to isolate um, markers or signs of depression. 
And actually, we've been able to show that by doing this in this way, we don't just pick up on whether someone may or may not have major depressive disorder. Actually, much more interestingly, we've been able to show that we can actually isolate the core symptoms of depression, which is really novel in itself. So ultimately, there are so many ways that somebody could be experiencing depression. Everybody's unique and they have their own reasons and they have their own physiology. And it's it's kind of problematic to paint everyone with the same brush and different symptoms. Say if you're experiencing a lot of fatigue or sleep disturbances, you'll require a slightly different intervention than someone who's just experienced a lot of mood issues or having trouble concentrating, but actually their sleep is fine. So what we've been able to show is that if you look at all of these different things, voice and video and behavior, you can actually isolate fatigue from memory, from attention, from psychomotor effects, etc. And this then ultimately helps clinicians identify the right treatment for someone. So it's a very, very powerful tool um, in that you're not just telling some the clinician what the diagnosis is, which ultimately a lot of psychiatrists don't need help with. They need help with finding the right treatment. And that's based on symptoms, which is what we measure, essentially. Interesting. So do you think if we had um, a, a super long term study of people maybe were, weren't struggling when they first started using it and then you can following the patterns, you can then see trends about maybe what's happening you could almost use, my brain is like going 100 miles per hour. <laughs> my brain is like saying, well, what if we did journaling as part of this? So you kind of know what's going on in their life at the same time as figuring out these markers. And then you can see almost not obviously it's not causation, but like you could see the correlation yeah. <laughs> between life events and and so many different factors within their emotional health. Like that's so interesting. I mean, have you, because I know that you're only, did you say two yeah. years old mm-hmm. now? Um, but like, is that something you'd look to do with more research and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, at the moment, we've gathered data from over 2000 people on the platform. So we have like thousands of hours of of data across these different streams. And what uh, we've been able to kind of prove out and and we've published on is, is what I just said. But the power of this kind of tool is that using gaming isn't just, as I mentioned, like a stabilization method in itself. It also is a very, very good engagement tool. So you could actually use this um, longitudinally with a lot of people. So basically what what we're doing now, like we're going live with clinics in a week and a half, actually. So it's very, very intense time. But uh, the idea is every patient would play the video games before their first appointment. Then they have the first appointment. The clinician decides on the treatment method or decides to have further appointments. We then follow up with the patient um, throughout that period of treatment. So once a week or a few times a week, you log on to the platform and you play the video games that your clinicians assigned to you. And we're kind of monitoring you over time to see whether, you know, is this particular treatment actually impacting the symptoms that we want it to impact or is it not? I think there's, there's a lot of kind of assumption with depression or with mental health conditions. At the moment, the clinician sees you, you see a psychiatrist, even if you can express yourself and, you know, say you can have identified that you go on antidepressants and everything is fine when that couldn't be farther from the truth. So like antidepressants take six to eight weeks um, at a minimum to start to have an effect during those weeks, you might actually feel even worse, which could trigger suicide attempts. It's very, very critical period. Yeah. And then there's a very high 
probability you won't actually respond to those antidepressants and you'll need to do something different. You'll try different ones. And that whole cycle takes on average about eight years for someone to find the right treatment from the moment they actually start to get treatment. It's, it's, uh, the statistics are like quite, uh, quite shocking. So if you, if you have like a, a game, let's say, that's objectively tracking your response to treatment, you can imagine how that could cut down significantly on the time, essentially, to the right treatment. And you're doing it in a way that actually you might enjoy as you go on, essentially. So it makes it more likely you'll stick to it. Yeah. Yeah. When I first um, went to the doctor, actually, they basically said like, oh, you probably got depression. We'll put you on antidepressants, like exactly the same thing that you just said. And and then when I asked them more about antidepressants, they were like, well, we don't really know much about them. So it's kind of just a hope and see which one works for you. And if not, we'll just, it's very much trial and error. And I remember being shocked at the time to be like, oh my God, I thought we knew so much more about these. And like, don't get me wrong. I am an advocate for using medication if you need to. And I think it can be used in conjunction with other things too. Um, but yeah, it's not as simple as just like, oh, here's a pill. And now everything's sorted. Like it's just never the same. So yeah it's it's fascinating and I think we should embrace using you know games are something that half of the country probably half of the planet use on a semi-regular basis mm-hmm. um and it's yeah, pretty it's, it's a lot more accessible isn't it than like going to the doctors each time like it's you know so yeah exactly and you don't actually feel yeah, you don't feel like you're you're actually being tested or monitored or anything, really. Um, so, yeah, we found actually that we've had over 95% engagement rates, like across those 2,000 people, which, and that was from the age of 18 through to 75, which actually shocked me. I thought, okay, this will appeal to 18 to maybe 35-year-olds, that kind of generation. Um, actually, it's been across the board, which is so great to see, because it means you can use this technology, not just for depression, but also for kind of older age, cognitive decline um, disorders. You can use it with children, adults, adolescents, everything, um, everyone. And it's uh, it's super powerful, I think. So we're just yeah. scratching the surface now. We're just starting to see the capabilities of this. So what sort of games do you actually see within Themia? Like what, because I know that you mentioned like if you see pictures coming up and things, but what sort of actual games would you play if you were taking part in this? Yeah, so sorry, I should have made that clear earlier. Uh, so don't imagine anything like super, super complex and rich as a system just yet, because we are still quite a small company. Yeah, of course. Um, at the moment, they are kind of platformer games or kind of old school in terms of mechanics arcade games so we have a few card games essentially so to to give you an example we have a card game that um there's a deck of cards and the first uh card kind of um turns and exposes the number and then that slides away and then you have the next number is exposed that slides away etc and your goal in the game is to almost memorize the the cards themselves and so you're asked to tap the deck in the middle if you see a card that matches the immediately previously one previous one um and then you can imagine like you can make mistakes you have can record people's reaction times etc and that in itself has been found in depression to have a very specific kind of signal of reaction times and mistakes which is very different to um a healthy population that is matched for age gender education a number of other factors there's a very distinct signal there so that's an example of one of the games 
Um, we also have games, obviously there you're not talking, you're just reacting, but we're recording your facial expressions as well. Um, but then we also have games that are explicitly targeting speech. So uh, they are speech elicitation activities, let's say, not exactly games, but um, typically they involve like showing you beautiful animated illustrations that are very calming, they're very soothing, lovely kind of colors and images, but we ask you to describe what you're seeing. And it's meant to kind of direct your gaze into different areas and get you to speak about different actions and events happening in the scene. And we're just recording you while you're doing that. And then we're analyzing all those different features across the different streams. And it's very, very clear each time. I think that's something that needs to be made very um, apparent is we always make it clear when we're turning on the camera and when we're turning on the microphone. And so you consent to doing that as a user. You're never surprised by it. You can see a little image of yourself, so you know what's happening. And uh, the other thing is that nobody ever actually sees those streams of data. What our models do is they extract completely anonymized features. So you feel as a user, I think, a lot more comfortable doing that as well. I think that's a really interesting distinction between Themia and other companies. We actively track people. A lot of people, a lot of companies passively track you. So they, they're running in the background. I think that's almost, it, it can feel super invasive. Whereas here, you know exactly what's happening. You're in the game, you're playing, you can see yourself. You, you know that we're recording you essentially. Yeah. I mean, you might as well be upfront about it because that's exactly kind of the purpose of, of Themia, right? Is that you're meant to be tracking yep. you to, to see. Exactly. Um, the markers that might end up being used in a diagnostic setting, which is really, it's just like so interesting to me. I really like, <laughs> like when I was doing the research, I was just like, I got so into it and I was reading through a lot. And then I was like, I really need to stop because I will just, I can ask these questions in, <laughs> in the podcast. Um, but I, th I thought it was interesting as well earlier when you mentioned that you had covered um, more like, um, like disorders that are more degenerative, I guess, like Alzheimer's mm -hmm. and things like that. And recently at SAFE, we've also been looking at games that represent um, things like Alzheimer's. Like we recently just played a game called Before I Forget, which is all about you are someone who is experiencing Alzheimer's and you play as that person and it tries to almost be bring awareness to what it could feel like from their point of view. Um, and so... I wondered because I said you said that you're a big gamer, which um, I'm always interested in hearing. Um, what your were there any games that kind of inspired this? Were there any games that you think you actually have really emotionally connected to because of the story that they told or the emotion that they maybe evoked from you? I think it's very hard to say. Like I've not had the opportunity to play as many video games recently as I would have liked. I watch a lot of YouTubers play video games, which I know, like some people think this is horrific. Other people think it's it's great. Oh, I do um, it. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I do watch them play a lot of video games. And I think there there is so much power in the stories in the video games. Like I think... Um, I think one of the ones I recently saw, which was very interesting, like I didn't, I'm not sure I fully kind of agreed with exactly the the, the story, but the premise was very interesting, which was kind of Celeste, I think yes. it was it was called. Yes, I found that very interesting. Um, and it was really powerful because like the graphics were 
you know, very, I hesitate to say basic, but they, they kind of were compared to other games. And it was all about the emotions and kind of showcasing that in a certain way. I found that super interesting. I wouldn't say it inspired Themia in a way because it was quite, uh, I saw it quite late. But certainly, I think subconsciously, we've taken a lot of inspiration from games we've played in the past. And ultimately, I would love to see us build essentially a much bigger kind of adventure or RPG game as a framework that would host all of the other little games inside of it. So as a character, you could progress and you could gain points and have another motivator for, say, showing up for your therapy session or playing these other little games. Um, I think it's, you know, there's so much potential there looking at all the existing games. Um, Like RPG games used to be like my favorite. Like I was massive fan of Elder Scrolls and Morrowind, Skyrim, etc. So the concept of having a really big, rich game that hosts smaller games is super powerful, I think. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah, totally. Especially if you like you feel like your attention can be drawn in a lot of different ways as well. Like for some reason I also get stuck into like mini games within um the main games and I'll find myself like I think it was actually in a Life is Strange game, one of the recent ones. And there's an arcade game within the game. And I spent like two hours on it because I just got so <laughs> invested. And I was like, well, I don't even know what I was doing. And then I forgot that I was inside a different game. And then when I came out, yeah. I was like, whoa, this is weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, so thinking about how it works and, and if people know how it works within Themia, do you think that there's any possibility that people can self-consciously or subconsciously um, affect the results in a way because they know that they're being monitored or that they know that they're looking for certain things? Like, do you think that's a possibility? I think it's quite hard to actually do that with the games we have, but certainly the fact that it is a game and the fact that you're being monitored could impact your results in a certain way. So there is one aspect of having a game and coming back again and again is that you basically get better at it and you learn. And so that in itself influences your results. They'll be different each time you go in, they will get slightly better. Um, The way we account for that is in the same way that you do in other experiments where basically you have the patient group that does the the activity over time. And then you have a a control group that um, is made up of healthy individuals matched for all sorts of factors, typically age and gender, ethnicity, etc. And um, you then have them do the same thing. And so you'll basically have a learning effect in both groups. And so because you have the learning effect itself from both groups, you can actually subtract um, all of the differences that are due to the learning effect. So you can just focus on the depression signal itself. Um, and also the, how the depression group, let's say, from the other group learns that in itself can be very interesting to look at. Um, that's one kind of aspect. The other aspect is, you know, are you changing your responses because you know you're being monitored? Like, uh, you know, you feel a bit more awkward and that affects your facial expressions. Um, so that probably will happen the first once or twice that you play the video games. But actually the power of themia is in longitudinal monitoring. So after a while you do get used to it. And so you'll just kind of even out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, there is the the aspect of 
can you manipulate the game in some way because you want to be put on medication or because you want a certain result or you want to show that you don't have depression? Um, the answer to that is it's incredibly hard to do that because in there are so many thousands of features that we're recording, it's impossible to know how to behave so that we can capture it. So for instance, as I mentioned, the card game, there is a very specific range of reaction times that are indicative of depression versus like another disorder. Um, and there's a very specific time range within that that is indicative of the symptom, let's say. Um, your average user wouldn't know what that range is. So if they're super slow on purpose or super fast, they, you know, they wouldn't be able to manipulate it in that way. Um, the other kind of example is looking at facial micro expressions. What we do is we overlay a grid of thousands of pinpoints onto your face and we observe how each of the pinpoints kind of moves over time and we look at also your your the dilation of your pu of your pupils <laughs> and where you're looking on the screen it can be almost impossible to gauge for the average lay user how you should be moving in order for that to be picked up as depression or non-depression like there's so many things to think about you'd only be able to do one and then the others would be like no it's uh, <laughs> exactly yeah Exactly. So, There's like literally thousands of things that we look at. What about um, kind of multiple diagnosis? So say someone maybe struggles with depression and ADHD or something like that. Yeah. And, and the two have very different markers that identify them. Would it be possible for someone to be thinking actually they, you know, they have, because I know that you've said that everyone is slightly different in the way that they present um you know, markers from these different things, but would it be possible? It's certainly possible. It is a very complex um, problem to solve. So um, basically the way an AI model learns and starts to predict things is you expose it to a lot of that particular um, sample, essentially, or, or, or element that you want it to learn from. And so if you want to start to look at essentially comorbidities, so multiple different types of um, disorders at the same time, you would need to expose the model to all of those different disorders and to people who have multiple disorders right. uh, in order for it to learn and to become better. So it would require a lot of training for the model. That's if you were trying to kind of go at it from like a almost a brute force um, approach saying, look, you're my AI model. Um, I want you to just basically go and diagnose by yourself. And so I'm going to give you 10,000 patients with depression, 10,000 patients with ADHD, 10,000 with both. You learn the pattern and then I don't really need to know how it happens. You just tell me at the end. Um, that would be like a it, very expensive and time consuming, energy intensive exercise, like really resource heavy. Um, what we do is is a little bit different, actually. So we don't aim to kind of diagnose uh, in and of itself. Instead, we focus on the symptoms. And actually, symptoms um, are shared between disorders. So it gives you that advantage. If you're able to distinguish mental health symptoms, um, you know, or, or rather symptoms associated with mental illness, then as a clinician, if I just give you all the symptoms and tell you um, the, you know, quantify each one, you then as a clinician can go and make that diagnosis and say, hey, I see signs here of both depression, but also ADHD. I as a clinician will make the decision that this is both. So let's try and treat both. And yep. then Themia will monitor and observe. 
Um, so that's kind of why we also at the moment sell to, um, we work with psychiatrists and secondary care uh, clinicians because they have that expertise. We don't work with GPs at the moment. They're very generalist. They don't have that expertise. So if we gave them all the symptoms, probably they wouldn't be able to do as much with them and they may end up going in the wrong direction, which is not what we want. Um, so certainly we can approach it in this way. Ultimately, we will get to the point where we are also able to diagnose on our own. But um, at this point, this is a much safer and more ethical way to approach that kind of problem. Because yeah, comorbidities are, are super, super common. Almost everyone who has ADHD will also have some other um, condition like depression or anxiety. And almost everyone with depression also has anxiety. So we've seen that so frequently in our data. We pick up on depression and anxiety is almost always there as well. Interesting. It's so essentially it's it's using the expertise from, you know, clinicians who are used to diagnosing people, but also the tech to be able to help them make that decision more clearly um, by showing them the symptoms that are evident through gaming, which is amazing when exactly. you say it out loud. That's so cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So... When it's like, I know that you said it, it talks about monitoring anonymized facial features through video, which is um, really interesting. But And then it says about depression markers within that. This might be a, a weird question or not a, a, an easy to answer question, but like how much do, what what's the difference between someone who maybe isn't depressed versus someone who is in terms of their facial, like their micro expressions, how would you see the change within that? So it's, it's very subtle. So a lot of these things aren't actually detectable by the human eye. It's very tiny little changes, say in the angle of your eyebrow or how your mouth is moving. Um, an easier pattern to, to understand, let's say for a human, if we're talking about, um, video signal is um, eye gaze, for instance. It's very powerful in ADHD in particular. I'll just focus on that because it's quite easy to, to, mm -hmm. um, to comprehend. When somebody has ADHD, a very common symptom is that their eyes kind of like dart all over the place. They can't really focus on anything in particular or they don't stay there for very long. So there's a lot of darting about. It's not in their control necessarily. And so we would be able to say, okay, this person is looking at this corner of the screen, then they, they jump over here, then they jump over here, they jump over here. That's very different from other people of their age and um, of the same sex. So what, uh, what what's happening here? It would be flagged up, essentially. Uh, another easy to understand example is, um, say, let's focus on speech. So one feature that we found that comes up again and again is um, in the acoustic properties of somebody's voice, the amount that your voice breaks is actually a very strong signal of depression. Um, and uh, the number of personal pronouns you use in a sentence or in a paragraph is also very indicative of depression. People who use a lot of personal pronouns typically tend to also be depressed. There's a lot of self fixation within depression. And I just kind of gave, gave an example of why that might be the case, but each of these different features will likely have different reasons for being there. Um, but ultimately it's essentially the combination of them that creates a pattern. That is what we pick up on. So ho hopefully that, that helped a little bit. Yeah, no, explaining. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Thank you. Yeah. It's, 
it's so, it's so interesting because it's things that you would never really consider um especially when you're gaming as well like because there's other things or because you're doing something else your mind is occupied by whatever's in front of you you're not you're less likely to be you know thinking about what you're saying and and maybe being more choosy with your words and things like that so um oh yeah okay I love this <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, I, I love talking about it I, I love gaming uh, I love mental health I think that gaming has such a strong potential to basically give us objective markers of mental health and as a result if you can objectively show that there is something there there is a signal there is a symptom it becomes basically equivalent to a physical health condition in different Mm -hmm. ways like I think a lot of the stigma around mental health lies within the fact that we can't see what's happening in the person's mind or brain as easily as say you can with physical health like with physical health say there's a suspicion that you might have diabetes type one or something you go you do a blood test you go you do some some other physical health uh, tests and it comes back with the results and it's undisputable it's like yes you have diabetes yes you must go on insulin and your best friend and your family are not going to turn around and say oh my god this is your fault why do you have diabetes snap out of it just you don't, don't need yeah insulin. just be healthy yeah. <laughs> yeah just just be healthy um whereas with depression it's so different it's it's like it's this uh, this massive double standard is it like with depression it's like well somebody goes to the clinician and they say oh yeah maybe you have depression maybe not and then say you do and maybe you're suggested to go on antidepressants so many people will turn around and say well you know you're fine just snap out of it you don't need to go on medication Whereas if you can objectively show that somebody has these symptoms and it's real, it's as measurable as something else, then, you know, there shouldn't be the same stigma around it, right? So that it should be, it should be treated differently. I think that's one of the, the, the really, really important goals of Themia is to try and destigmatize mental health. Um, so it becomes, if you can show that mental health is as objectively measurable as physical health, then it should be treated in the same way, essentially, and be as accepted. Yeah. And that's exactly why I wanted to have this conversation, because it's it's amazing enough that you're making a game that can help diagnose people, but also the fact that it's then dual like trying to eliminate stigma around mental health is is so interesting to me. And obviously it's it's huge to what we're trying to do at Safe in Our World as well. Um I had a thought while you were saying all of this and like obviously at the moment your games are like you said they're like platformer based or a little bit more um, simplistic rather than like these really heavy narratives and things. Do you think it would be possible to have a game which has an incredibly rich narrative and has maybe you know stories of which present traumatic situations or things that when players then experience, you can see their reaction or, you know, record their reaction in terms of a hundred different things that you you take note of within Themia. Um, and maybe even diagnose, say, from there, like you see someone's reaction to something traumatic in a video game, maybe also indicative of what they might be struggling with in their own life. Like, do you think that's a possibility for the future? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think for us, we haven't focused yet on the etiology of why someone may or may not be experiencing some symptoms. I think that could be a very powerful way to um, identify 
root causes. It could also be a way, let's say, if you want to take it even further, you could argue that you can use uh, a very rich narrative or specific constructs within a game to embed things like CBT in the game. Um, there are some companies, for instance, who tr are trying to create video games that have a lot of CBT in them so that they're actually treating you as you're playing the game. Um, there is a very nice example of, let's say, um, <clears throat> ADHD in particular. There is a company called Achille um, who develop video games and their target is to treat ADHD through the video game. And actually, they are as effective, um, it, it appears, as uh, a drug for ADHD, which, which is so cool. Like a video game can help treat your ADHD. Um, we haven't started going in that direction yet, so the treatment direction. Um, there is also the, you have to balance ethically what you're presenting each person. I think it's, it's a very different proposition to present a patient within the clinical setting a nice soothing game versus, say, a game that has some traumatic events in it. We don't want to risk necessarily, you know, triggering someone as well. So for the moment, it, it's kind of all very positive and we develop the games with patients. So the color scheme, everything has been chosen with them to be soothing. And actually purple appears to be the, one of the most soothing colors. So it's one of the reasons it features. Yeah, <laughs> it features really heavily. Yeah. Yeah. So there is so much potential in what you can do. Um, I think it's just, you know, you also need to be kind of mindful of, of how you want to do it and what you want to, you know, evoke in the person as well. Oh gosh, yeah, like it was, just for reference, um, the trauma was an example. I wasn't uh, necessarily trying to suggest that you should do, um, you know, just put people through traumatic situations because that's <laughs> never good. But um, it's just more of a, about like a research perspective, I guess. I think it would be so interesting to see, like I've certainly reacted certain ways um to not only video games but like film as well um and people mm. around me who maybe haven't gone through a similar experience are like are you okay like why are you crying so much it's not that hard and I'm like oh my god are you kidding me <laughs> so it would just be so interesting to be able to you know see the relationship between that as well um oh absolutely I think like if you look at research there are so many studies that really show that people with depression or people who've gone through certain things um, respond much more strongly to negative stimuli than to positive. So like that is very, very kind of strong body of evidence showing that. Um, so I think there's, if you think about depression, there's different aspects to depression. So there's um, cognitive traits that are associated with depression. And then there's also something uh, called cognitive biases, which are associated with depression. A uh, cognitive trait is a way in which your brain kind of works. So uh, a cognitive trait of depression may be uh, a slightly worse memory in certain elements. A cognitive bias, on the other hand, is almost what you're drawn to um, when you have depression. And within the cognitive biases, there is a very strong negative bias. So you'll see people who are reading texts and who have depression fixate on the negative words. People, um, again, with depression who are seeing images, if you show them a positive and a negative image in the same screen, they'll always, always look at the negative image, essentially. They're drawn to it because mm. it resonates with them. Um, but then it's kind of like, do you want to do that in a gaming situation? Do you want to, 
you know, actually do that kind of thing. It no, becomes like you might a put them in like yeah. that really awful mindset as well. Yeah, it's like exactly. <laughs> strangely, for me as well, it's not just like negative. It's like super positive things. Like if someone's telling me like something really affirming, I'm just like, oh no, I will cry. Like if you're really nice to me, <laughs> not easily. <laughs> that sounds very British. <laughs> <laughs> it is very British. I don't know why. I'm like, oh my god, no, don't be nice. <laughs> Please just make fun of me instead. This is too much. Um, <laughs> maybe that. That's a cultural thing as well. <laughs> um, so final question, and then I promise I will stop bugging you about Themia because I've got so many. Um, no worries. How do you kind of see the future of this sort of technology working within gaming, but also in collaboration with clinicians in this space? I think it's a very interesting one. So I would absolutely love it if we could work with some of the big gaming studios or you know multiple indie studios who would embed certain aspects of themia um certain concepts within their games so that anyone anywhere playing any of these games could actually start to track their mental health i think that would be so powerful i think the future of themia is essentially to be able to assess and monitor and eventually diagnose to a certain um point any cognitive disorder whether that's you know um, neurodevelopmental disorders in children such as autism or ADHD whether it's depression or schizophrenia or whether it's kind of older age cognitive decline Alzheimer's Parkinson's disease etc we are aiming to be able to kind of cover all of them and to be able to give this to everyone like to we're starting with clinicians and we want this to be given to every clinician everywhere, starting with secondary care. Kind of our next target is to go to primary care. So offer this to GPs once it's more evolved because they do need more information there uh, so that they can make their decision. And then eventually we want to um, actually offer this to end users directly. So it's not just through your clinician, you actually can have hold of this, but that is such you know, it's it's such um, a big step to take. It's also like kind of the, the level of risk you take on if you're giving this to an end user. It's such a powerful tool. You need to be 100%, not just 100%, you need to be 1,000% confident and sure that this is absolutely, you know, cast iron. And so we need to go through several kind of steps and years more of development and, you know, proving everything out safely in order Mm -hmm. to actually do that but that would be the end goal so that you know it doesn't matter whether you're in the UK in the center of London or whether you're in like I don't know uh, the outback in Australia it wouldn't matter you'd still be able to monitor your own mental health and have a really strong handle on it that would be the goal yeah I love that and I think it's what a lot of people would find really empowering because for the most part like going to the doctors isn't always a positive experience especially if you're you know with a clinician that maybe doesn't quite understand you on an emotional level or isn't you know um, as accepting I guess of mental health Mm -hmm. disorders um, which can be really hard especially as we move like across different cultures and across different countries Um, so yeah I think that's that's amazing. I'm excited to see where where Themia continues to go because it's it's honestly just like beginning at this point. There's so much out there yeah. that you can that you can do. So 
yeah thank you so much for telling me about it it's, it's been so fascinating to me <laughs> yeah thank you so much for having me yeah thank you for the questions they were really really well considered I could tell that you did do research on the topic as well <laughs> <laughs> they were different from other questions I I would typically get so yeah very nice thank you so much for having me thank you um and just before we finish um can you let people know where to find out more about Themia or more about what you're working on yeah, absolutely. So uh, we have a website, www.themia.ai. It is a little bit outdated. You'll see there's only, for instance, in the team, it's just myself and Stefan are there, and actually there's 13 of us now. We really oh, wow. need to update. <laughs> we really need to update the website. Um, that's actually on my co-founder. He, uh, he wanted to... to he coded the whole thing up, which makes it incredibly hard now to change. Right. Um, so we really, really need to revamp it. But uh, you can always email us as well at um, info at themia.ai if you want to find out more. If you are a clinician who wants to work with us, we're always looking to work with more people. If you're a big gamer and you want to be part of a trial that we're running, please also do reach out. We have a long list of people that we contact every time we do a new study. So yeah, please feel free to reach out. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of safe space if you're struggling please know that there is support out there and if you're looking for somewhere to start please do visit our website at safeandourworld.org for a list of global helplines information and support you can also find us on all of the social medias at safe and our world if you'd like to follow the charity in our future endeavors thanks for listening and we'll see you next time